everybody. Welcome, welcome here to show 104 on Crypto Voices. Matty Majinskis here from the Baltics, joined here with the uh, the new team now for the uh, second show. We have uh, Michelle from uh, Noddle and from France. Michelle, how you doing? Hey guys, great. How are you doing? Good. And we have uh, Alec Harris uh, representing the Eastern US. Alec, what's going on? Yeah. Hey guys. Good to be with you. Our guest that never fails. I always, you know, when I don't have like a better guest to ask, I just, he's just always ready to fill in. One of my favorites here on the show, uh, CoinKites, NVK, Rodolfo. How you doing, buddy? Hey, nice to be back. <laughs> That's it? Yeah. <laughs> I come too often on the show to have too much to add to openings. Well, that's what I was saying. I mean, uh, back when we couldn't get anyone good, you were you were really uh, <laughs> really great, gracious of your time, and, and we're grateful for that for coming on. But uh, now, man, lots to talk about. It will be fun since you're not in Miami enjoying the sun. Are you disappointed to not be there? Uh, yes and no. It's like I promised myself that like this this year I was going to. S- to slowly sort of like get off the spotlight a bit. Uh, but then like last year, like was dead, right? Nothing happened. So I couldn't like get it out of my system. And then this year was like difficult too. So yeah, it kind of sucks not to be Miami. Uh, everybody's there. I feel like this is like the last big bash before Bitcoin goes to like 100,000 and all Bitcoiners start to disappear. So, uh, so yeah, in that, in that sense, it kind of sucks. I definitely got some messages from a few friends in advance with the old, just presumptive, where are you staying? Um, <laughs> to which the answer was, you know, I won't be there, but, um, and now my Twitter feed is an entire, you know, after party FOMO <laughs> slash like shilling who you ran into experience. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I could probably guess what it feels like to be there. I got my national interest exemption from the United States Department of State exactly four minutes after my plane was supposed to take off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, no, I, I wonder who they're going to fill in on the on the panel I was in. <laughs> the State Department was very happy to issue that, though. I, I saw that message. That was pretty... Yeah, uh, uh, was pretty I'm sure you told them when you needed it by, too. So that, that all checks out. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw it, but some of the conferences, like it's probably a moot point at this point, but you know, late last year, early this year, they were... Um, they had like, you know, VR versions, then like online versions, and then the in real life versions. Uh, and I tended, I tried one last summer, I went to the Magical Crypto Conference, because I had just gotten a VR headset, and I was kind of like, geeking out with it. And so I attended that in VR. Uh, and I will say that the concept was way cooler than the actual experience. Um, going to a conference in VR, maybe in five years, it'll be, it'll be really cool. But uh, it was, yeah, <laughs> it was not nearly as cool as I thought it would be. Oh, for sure. The, the hardest part of VR is aiming the beer bottle to your mouth. <laughs> yeah, it's just awkward. It's 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 very hard to. Uh, it, there's so long you can have the helmet in your head. Like I was uh, giving a talk at the Udi's VR conference, and it's so weird. It's like talking to yourself in a podcast. Like it's it's it. it it's, it's definitely not there yet. Well, the other thing that I found odd is you walk into like, you know, the main forum or whatever the room is, right? And 
your experience there is of depth and you're separated from the people, but the audio experience is of everyone talking at the same time over each other. And so like they haven't, there's no spatial relation to the audio. So you have to kind of like sidebar somewhere. Um, I mean, I'm bullish on VR long-term, but it was, it was just like, I felt like I was somewhere that was in the alpha version of whatever it was. I don't know, man. VR has been coming since I think the, the, the 80s, 70s, you know, it's always, it's kind of like AI, you know, every, every decade is like, oh, let's, VC, all the VCs want to invest in that same space again. And that is like a big fail. <laughs> to me, VR is only going to happen when we find a different interface to humans than, than just eyes and, and mouth. You know what I mean? You got to like plug in. Are we already going back to Elon Musk then? <laughs> we tried to avoid him on the first show. And- well, he dumped. Oh no, dude! Impossible. He dumped on this morning. Are you guys watching the price? I know, I know, I saw it. But I'm talking about Neuralink because you you were implying that you're uh, ready for Neuralink already. Yeah. Are you? Well, I, I am not. I'm I'm gonna. I I think VR is gonna be great when there is Neuralink, but I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We we were we were ta- we were debating whether we go back and you know bring this clown up again during the show, but I think we have to, uh, which, which, which one is it going to be the price, the tweets, or is it going to, we're going to go to uh, Starlink and change it up, which we talk about. Mm, I'm not anti Starlink. Well, you, you know, I'm a big fan of Starlink, so we can. Yeah. I would like to hear Michelle's uh, take on Starlink, but I guess someone else has to say why they like Starlink first. So what do you think of Starlink, Rodolfo? I mean, it's, so I am, a bit skeptical that like they really are doing uh, like a lot of new tech on satellite like um you know exploring it there is like 50 different providers of this stuff and most of them are just using the existing two-way set uh, constellations the difference is this guy has access to his own satellites right so so he can be a little bit less of a dick than normal telecom companies and make a better product. I, I don't know. Maybe like Keto can can tell us like if the tech is like actually very different than the existing satellite stuff. Well, there are two things I don't like about Starlink, uh, which really, really and and it really annoys me that in the Bitcoin world everybody like doesn't even question those. Uh, first one is concentrating that much power in the hands of one private company because basically they own the network, they operate the network, and they can do whatever they want on this network. Um, so it's exactly the opposite of censorship resistant. And the other thing is, and you as a, as a person who likes to watch the sky at night knows that very well, uh, <clears throat> He's basically destroying our night sky. Uh, like it's impossible to not see these satellites, and it's I don't know maybe ten percent now of the total number. Yeah, I, I I don't know if you guys have seen it yet. I was surprised. I I'm ex- been exploring a new telescope that I have here, and uh, you know during the lockdown world, kind of post lockdown world, and I saw it for the first time the other night. I thought like with all this UFO chat that's going on with the Pentagon, I thought. It was, as I've never had that feeling, I was like, what am I looking at right now? And then I had to, it took me a second, and I realized it's probably what it was. I looked at that, like a YouTube video to see what it actually looked like. But have you guys ever seen it? It is pretty 
disturbing actually to see it like just going across the sky like some weird you know sky train i i haven't yet i i managed to to spot the iss pretty easily now because i wanted to show it the kids and uh and yeah, that that one is really easy to spot, but I, I haven't seen starting yet. Yeah, I didn't know it was going to be that low in the sky when they were talking about that stuff. Like it needed to be that low that we could see see it just so uh, distinctly. Yeah. Uh, so I'll take the opposite side of this one. <clears throat> Setting aside, you know, personality problems with Elon Musk, um, and, and I. I acknowledge what you said, Keto, about like it's a consolidation in that particular vertical of, of the market because they, you know, basically own the low Earth orbit satellite kind of ISP type services. But it's a disruption of the distribution of data overall, right? And so we already have consolidation of ISPs globally and in any given country. You know, you're lucky if you have two strong competitors, and in some large countries, you have a handful of strong competitors. But they own the pipes, they own the content delivery, um, and in a lot of markets, they will edge each other out. So, you, well, in the U.S., might, you might have like five dominant ISPs. In any given market, you really usually only have one with like a secondary that's there just to, you know, offset any attack on the primary as being a monopoly. Uh, and then they just kind of distribute the country amongst themselves. So this providing an alternative to that, I think, is ultimately a good thing. I signed up. You know, in the early like pre-order phase for Starlink, I haven't received it yet, but you know they took my hundred dollars. Uh, I will say that you can sign up for a Starlink service in a very private manner, so I was able to go through the entire process without revealing any personal information. Um, so you know that was cool. Uh, the other thing about about it that I think is potentially interesting in the future is it could disrupt the telco side of things. Right. So it, right now you require the satellite dish and you have to kind of fix it and distribute it into um, to a gateway to your property or, or whatever your location is. But if this in the future can be something that is more over the air, uh, anything that provides an alternative to the legacy platforms to me is interesting. Uh, and at 10 years from now, they will be the legacy platform. But for now, uh, I'm at least willing to test it out and see what it's like. Well, I I understand your point, but I think the the picture you're uh, describing of the legacy market is actually not entirely true because uh, uh, I've been in the internet business for 20 years now, and uh, there are thousands of micro ISPs in each country, uh, which cover very specific areas. Uh, and they usually buy bandwidth from many independent upstream ISPs. They're, they're, uh, there is nothing more decentralized than the internet. Um, like you have maybe 20 or 30 tier one uh, operators, which you probably can't even name because they are not known to the public. Uh, and then every uh, tier two ISP is buying uh, internet connectivity from these companies and uh, ISPs you're talking with as a consumer are maybe tier three or tier four ISPs that buy uh, connectivity from even more operators. And they also have direct connectivity between each other. Me as a micro hosting company, uh, I have direct connectivity with maybe uh, 50 to 100 other ISPs. And that goes through none of the major players. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think people underestimate how decentralized the internet is, and it was built like this since day one. That's by design. So that's interesting to me. But when I I'm thinking of it from like the retail choice standpoint, and so as a retail um, consumer, right? And I actually didn't realize there were that many micro ISPs, but as a retail consumer, I I don't have the experience of that many options. Uh, and to me, it's just like whoever will service at whatever address I'm at, at least here in the U.S. And so in, in my case, where I live, that's really two ISPs. Uh, and then, you know, you have your like, if you wanted to go with something like HughesNet, which is super slow and kind of the predecessor to what Starlink is trying to be. Uh, so to me, this is just adding another option uh, that differentiates from the legacy providers. I don't know if you know this, but HughesNet is essentially... Uh, they're a reseller of uh, like a, a few different options of uh, satellite internet, right? And uh, and there is one, there is a new version of that. Uh, and two is they all resell like similar providers of satellite internet. It's a bit better now, by the way. There is a new version of that. Um, and... Uh, and then, uh, like for non-home in cities, there is like hundreds of providers. Some of them buy from bigger players. Some of them use sort of other pipes. But it's like it's all over the place. It's just that like when you live in cities, it seems like there's just two providers because the big ones do offer better packages. Yeah, in Europe, we usually get between like three and five uh, major ISPs in every possible address. And you can switch from one to another uh, anytime you want. The the copper or fiber infrastructure is still owned by one of them, but it's only like really the physical wire. But by law, any ISP can use this wire to provide service to anybody. That's right. They just pay. A, they they pay a rental fee essentially. But the U.S. is probably like radically bad compared to Europe and probably even Canada as far as like switching goes. I mean, as far as what I remember. No, 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 no. Yeah, but they'll no, keep you on. It, it, like it depends to... on the on the state in the U.S. So what what most people don't understand is that there is the pipe, right? Normally copper wires, sometimes fiber, and uh, it really depends on your exact location. Even a block in the city, some blocks in the city, uh, you can get uh, a different provider on the same pipe. They will pay just rent to the pipe owner. But uh, but then, you know, some places you can't. It has to be somebody else. Like, it's extremely location-dependent, uh, your options. So, Rodolfo, do you like Starlink or not? Uh, I mean, like, listen, I, I, I signed up for it. I'm curious. I want to see if it's better than uh, ExploreNet, uh, which is uh, one of the, the satellite providers I use uh, for, for a remote location. Uh, and uh, and then there is LTE as well that now works great. So uh, I don't know. I'm willing to try. Well, I guess as, as technical people, we all want to try just for the fun of having a satellite high-speed connection because it's something that never happened before. And, and low latency because we we can get like 50 megs downstream on the on the satellite connection, but with 800 milliseconds latency right now on a geosynchronous satellites. Uh, and then you have networks like Iridium, which are like 64K probably uh, on low orbit. 
and costs uh, an arm and a leg. So literally, the arm and the leg. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like dollars per megabyte. Wow. Yeah, uh, people use Iridium for remote uh, emergency stuff. Yeah, if if you go to in the middle of the desert and you need an emergency phone, uh, that that's great. There's also Turaya or something like that. Uh, that's one pretty cheap actually for voice and text. Uh, you can even get the phone and the SIM card on Amazon uh, for maybe five hundred dollars with some sub- included minutes. Uh, but I don't think it makes data. Uh, oh. You like this. Uh, back when we had the Quenkai payment terminals, they had uh, GPRS, right? Mm-hmm. And we found an Israeli provider that uh, they resold um, Telefonica SIMs for GPRS International. So essentially, you put the GPRS uh, uh, SIM on it, and you have data anywhere on Earth that, that has a tower, even a crappy tower. So we had like people in the middle of the desert <laughs> essentially using the terminals. Uh, which was kind of interesting. I didn't know it could go like that remote. Yeah, what, what, nice. what's fun actually is... Very poor data though. Yeah, for, for IoT, it's better usually to buy a SIM card from a foreign country uh, because this way you can use all the networks of your country uh, in roaming. And if you buy a local SIM card, you can use only one network. Nice. Uh, so yeah, the, all these international uh, IoT providers usually use some unpopulated country SIM cards just to give you better coverage in the other countries. Uh, but now they are switching to eSIMs. And uh, I don't know if you know such a device. Uh, I don't remember the name, but it's like a 4G uh, router for going on vacation in another country. And basically uh, what they do is they connect through a low-speed connection to the servers when you when you log in. And then they download an eSIM into the device for the local country uh, in which you are at a given moment. That's pretty neat. Back to Starlink, though. Uh, does anybody know like what's the latest? Like what will you get uh, connection-wise for what you'll pay, and how quickly will it be available in, say, North America? Yeah. So I saw it demoed. Uh, and I also have a colleague who received his. And in both cases. So there's not saturation in the market yet. They're just trickling out the user bases based on, I think it's based on where you live. But um, they, they were pretty close to as advertised, like, you know, over 80 meg. Uh, I didn't see it in the in the demo they did. It didn't get over 100, which is like they claim to be at 100. Um, but it was it was not like very far off of what they were advertising. And you're paying what for that? I'm glad we're doing an ISP show today. <laughs> I forgot to tell you pre-show. This is, yeah, we're doing less economics and more just stuff people can use, even if it's Starlink. I wish we had a referral link, but uh, I forget what the price was. It was on par with another ISP, at least here in the U.S., which w- would make it like around $100 a month. Um, I could be wrong on that, but that's that sticks out in my mind. We'll get to your products eventually, Novak, but, you know, maybe. <laughs> We don't offer SP services. So when are you putting SIM cards in the cold card? We we wanted to make a product, different product, that would have those. So it would be chain state aware, right? So you would know transactions. But then it's like the complexity and the cost. And it, you know, it's just like you end up making a phone. This is the problem, right? Uh, and when you are at a phone level, now it's like a different cost and scale you need. Uh, now, Laura could be interesting if you have uh, 
uh, Alora Mesh being a little bit more uh, taking hold in uh, North America. Yeah, speaking of mesh networks, what's the latest with your ham radio project? That was another interesting one we were thinking about. Like, if you're talking about broadcasting in a future where internet connectivity is at risk, just theoretically, of course, is it better to have like your ham radio style mesh networking as well, or like sat- will satellites be useful in this case? if internet connectivity is down? There is no realistic way of blocking the internet by any country anywhere, right? I mean, even in North Korea, they find a way. The only problem is they shoot you. (laughs) They found that you found a way, right? Uh, So the deterrence with violence there is a little bit next level. But realistically speaking, when you talk about like solving lack of internet issues for censorship or because of remoteness, or, or just like lack of infrastructure, like it, it really is a mix of solutions, right? So for example, you can, with Wi-Fi, you can do 10 kilometers if you have the right gear. Uh, and Wi-Fi is already supported by every device, right, in the market. And then you can connect that to like something else that then talks long distance, uh, like like talking about tens of kilometers. You could do 10 kilometers on Wi-Fi? Yeah, What's uh? How many? What's the frequency on that? Oh, no, not much. Like it, it just need a Yaji. So you would normally do a two point four gigahertz, right? Uh, so that means the antenna would be about. Uh, With the two point four gigahertz and the right antenna, you can go ten kilometers. Yeah. So so the antenna would be essentially like the size of uh, of like a a computer, like just just like length would be like about a foot or two foot antenna but but it's like an, an antenna with rays right it's like a yaji so it's directional you have to point it's not like it's only, not omnidirectional you cannot yeah. you'd require too much for that but but still like 10 kilometers you'd be like 10 kilometers like if you do line of sight of course uh and uh with like not more than 50 dollars worth of gear not even Twenty dollars worth of gear. You can make the antenna with like some wire. And Matthew, if you look at uh, Ubiquiti's catalog, actually they have some wireless ISP range. Uh, they sell like yep. everything you need to create a wireless ISP in a desert in the world, and you can go up to like fifty or one hundred kilometers with some of the some of the gear they sell. Yeah, Michelle got me all into Ubiquiti, so hackers, you know. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I know I do I mean Ubiquity makes awesome stuff. It's a shame they got pounded so badly. <laughs> By who? What happened? Oh, they had a major hack. If you were using a ubiquity.com account to manage your devices, uh, they basically leaked all the info of all the configurations. All oh, right, you mentioned this, yes. Uh, I wasn't. Yes. Keep going. I personally never used the 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 connected account to the server, so I mean, as long never do on anything. If you're using a cloud service, you you get what you get. No, but but that's true for everything, right? Like if you buy a if 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 you buy like a robot vacuum, if you buy I don't know like a smart thermostat or whatever you buy. Like nowadays, it's very hard to find things that are not smart. But the key thing is just never connect those things. To the to the remote service, just don't do the full setup 
and then you're fine. <laughs> what about security cameras? <laughs> well, don't, don't have them inside your house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, obviously, yeah. But I mean, what about security cameras that are outside and then you have information that uh, might be uploaded to the cloud? Well, again, I'm using Ubiquiti for my cameras at home and they record to my own server, uh, which I own and control. So. Then the average listener is thinking, how the hell do I get my own server? Just host for coins? Um, yeah, that's a way. <laughs> you, you could host an NVR in host for coins, but no, actually Ubiquiti sells like the hardware box, which is the server both for your yes. uh, cameras and Wi-Fi and security and now even voice uh, and everything. So uh, yeah, you can host that anywhere you want. You, you can even just put the, the server in your parents' house and cross-replicate the cameras of one house into the other house. So if someone breaks in, the recordings are not in the same location. Here's the thing. Almost nothing needs to phone home back to like the manufacturer in China, right? Maybe nothing does. But if you want to have connected devices, which like we do have some of that at home, we just run it on a uh, private network at home. And if I need to access it remotely, I'll VPN into that private network and manage it from there. Um, and so that way it's behind my firewall. It's in the private IP space at home, and it allows me to still, like, you know, not feel like I have to have an antiquated uh, home in order to, you know, keep the kids happy, right? That it still feels connected and smart, but it just doesn't talk to the outside world. Yeah, don't don't buy TVs with microphones. <laughs> it's hard though now, like you know, if you want to buy anything, it usually has some smart functionality because that's how it sells. Yeah, my, my SSID for those is literally called Internet of Shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, just drill the microphones off of things like uh, like those stupid uh, uh, Amazon remotes. These guys are completely insane to put microphones on everything. Got to drill them all. Well, if you invite Amazon into your home, you have a whole host of problems. Uh, and you guys may have seen this whole new sidewalk initiative where... Basically, your Amazon devices will share like a little bit of your bandwidth with the neighborhood so that devices can remain connected, you know, as you walk down the street. Um, oh, my God. And it's, it's, set up, it's set up by default, right? And so, first of all, you have to be at least a, have a little bit of initiative and, and go and figure out how to turn that off if you're running Amazon devices like Ring or Alexa. Or, I actually didn't even look that carefully into it because I don't have any of that stuff, but um, you know, they sell it to you like it's some gift. And in reality, they're just taking everyone's private network and sharing it with the neighborhood and God knows who else. Maybe dumb question, but back to this uh, uh, cloud services and passwords and stuff. When some of these hacks happen, and obviously there can be like different dumps, like maybe you just lose addresses, maybe you lose uh, uh, credit card info, billing info. But what about like typically with these cloud services, like the password itself? Like, would you only get it if your password was listed on uh, you know, their, their, in their server and like the registry of your card for your name? Or would they, do some of these hacks act, actually able to see if a, if a password was like input at any given time, like with the text? Usually people don't use many passwords and they tend to use the passwords over a long period of time on different services. So <clears throat> what usually happens is if your password got leaked from back when the passwords were stored in clear text over, of, or with very weak encryption, 
they already exist in some database and then they will be used as a dictionary attack against new databases. So it's much easier to uh, to find if you use the same password for other services. And also there are rainbow tables. So it's like pre-generated tables of hashed uh, passwords or texts, uh, which can be used to compare uh, if any hashed password in a leaked database matches uh, something in these tables. And this way they can get your password very quickly. Whoa, a rainbow table. Never heard that. Now there are new password algos that... Uh, allow to avoid that, like with salts and whatnot. Uh, for example, the one we are using everywhere in our products is uh, Argon2i, uh, which is supposed to be resistant to this kind of attacks. I fully agree. Uh, the thing that would be a major hedge for most people, and it requires very little extra effort, is to have a not only a unique password for every site or service, but also have a unique username. Uh, and so if it's requesting an email address, then you need to use an email aliasing service or something, right? So that you don't always use, you know, heaven forbid your Gmail, but like your ProtonMail or whatever. Just use an aliasing service and make it, so your, your username and password are unique for every single service you have. You have no replication. Uh, and then you have a good security posture and protocol towards accessing your password manager. And if you do that, you're ahead of probably 99% of the world. What are examples of those services that you mentioned? So the one that I like a lot is called Anon Addy. Uh, and it's run by this one, I think he's Dutch, and he's super, I don't know if he has a whole team or if it's just him, but he seems to reply to all the support requests himself. Uh, so you can pay with crypto. The premium account is like $12 a year or something. Uh, and you can bind it to multiple prime email addresses. So you could have multiple kind of like core email addresses that you attach or append uh, an alias on top of. And what you do is you get an alias domain. So it would be like, you know, cryptovoices.anonaddy.com. And you wouldn't use some any nomenclature that was tied to your identity, obviously, but right, that would be an example. And then everything in front of that top level domain would route to your inbox. So it would be, you know, Amazon at cryptovoices.anonaddy.com. And so you can make a just-in-time email address without any um, without any foresight or planning on the fly every time you sign up for a service or every time, if you want to like put your name in the hat for a free lunch somewhere, have at it. You're not revealing any personal information other than that single just-in-time alias. And you can shut off that alias when you're done. And you can also see if someone's reselling your information. So if you create an alias that's Amazon at whatever, and you start getting you know emails from eBay there, then you'll know that that email address was resold to Amazon because you've only given it one place, or excuse me, to eBay, because you've only given it out at one place. So I'm a huge fan of, of using email aliasing. I think there's simply mail. I'd have to go look up. There, there's definitely a handful of competitors. Um, and ProtonMail has built in something like this uh, into their paid services too. So, um, you know, pick your poison, but having that is going to help you a lot and it allows you a much more fine tuning over how you share your PII. And Apple, not bad either. Yeah, totally. So if, if you're using an iCloud account, they have these anonymous accounts per application and per website now. And more and more websites supports Apple login. Uh, so that, yeah, that, that's really convenient. And they also let you choose exactly what info you're sharing with every app. I think like a huge thing that people forget to do is like when there is a form for a sign up on a website, 
don't put your name. Use some hash or whatever. Like, don't put personal information unless you need to pay for something, right? Uh, unless it's credit card information, that unfortunately there is no alternative. Uh, just, just why are you going to fill out the form? Yes, same for security questions. Actually, just just put random data and record what you used somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, don't play your high school. Uh, <laughs> totally agree. Hey, just a quick break to remind you that this show is sponsored by HODL HODL. HODL HODL is the fastest and most secure way to buy or sell Bitcoin without verification and with the lowest fees on the market. Trade in any country in the world for any payment method and any currency. So go ahead and sign up with the link hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices and get a discounted trading fee forever hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices when you sign up you won't regret it uh, thanks again to max roma and everybody over at hodl hodl for the support and uh, a reminder they also organized the very well run and fantastic baltic honey badger bitcoin conference every fall in riga so head on over to hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices thanks again and back to the show Rodolfo, what's next on the line of uh, security enhancements at ColdCard? You got a ton coming up, as far as I know. So we launched this thing called Seed XOR, Seed XOR. Uh, it's like open standard uh, for people to uh, back up their seeds um, encrypted, uh, but human legible. Uh, it's pretty cool. So. Essentially, instead of having just a single metal backup plate, you make two. And you need the two combined to make the real one. Um, and it's nice because it's plausible, deniable, right? So if somebody finds that, you can even put a little bit of money on the, on the part, on, the, on, the, on part A or part B. Uh, and, and I think this is pretty cool. I think it's going to sort of catch on as people start to understand it. Um, that is, and you can do it by hand too. You can calculate the hash by hand. Uh, so, uh, you know, very, very, very super fun. Uh, we created a little website for it. I think it's, it's uh, seedxor.com. Yeah, that's cool. I haven't seen this before. So it's available now? Yep, yeah. And, uh, and you can do this with uh, any hardware wallet. It's not going to be as easy just because they don't support on the UI. But you can do it by hand or with a script we have. So you can do this to any BIP 8924-word seed. Yeah, nice. Any vendor or anything. Speaking of seeds, I have a question for you guys because I it, it's a big issue, actually. I have probably like 10 hardware wallets right now for different users and different people in the family. And, okay, I have these seeds on paper or metal or whatever, but what do I do with these backups? Yeah, so so that's... That's exactly what Seed XOR um, uh, addresses, right? So um, the, the the biggest issue is it's like this was the motivation, right? Okay, I have a harder wallet. I put the seed in metal. Now what the fuck do I do with the seed in metal, right? Like where do I put it? Um, so so we created this little thing that you split that seed into two new seeds that need to be combined together because then you can go and you put, you know, one in a safe deposit box, the other one is buried somewhere <laughs> and then that's it. Right. Like 
you don't have to worry about the backup being discovered. It's, it's, it's not an issue. Um, another thing too is for families, I highly recommend BIP85. Uh, so essentially, uh, our device does this, but this is a BIP uh, that hopefully other devices will support. Um, you can deterministically generate new seeds. So you can have a master seed that you control for your family, and then it generate new seeds for their hardware wallets from that original seed. So then you only really need one backup for, for, for them, right? I mean, provided that this is not hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever. Mm. That's cool because uh, I'm sure you guys are the same, but everyone in my family and extended social circle always comes to me for this type of question. And honestly, I don't always want the responsibility. So uh, to take a little bit of trust out of it would be nice. Yeah, I yeah, I, I highly like send them to, to the seedxor.com website. Tell them to do that. Like that is the safest thing that I can think of. Because honestly, multi-sig for an average user is unusable. Uh, it really is. Even on cold card? Rolling your own? Yeah, like... I mean, listen, you know, I use it like I know advanced people use it. Semi-advanced people use it. If you're using just cold cards, cold card with cold card is a bit easier because the cold cards kind of talk to each other in a, in a way, like simply speaking. Um, but like multi-vendor, multi-sig is an absolute clusterfuck for the average person. So I would not recommend it. So what I really like is that any service that has kind of some... Um, duress plan uh where you can have a so what happens when someone like breaks down your door right plausible deniability yeah and this became it was sort of a a nice to have abstract concept and then a couple years back this guy who i don't know personally but he's in a bitcoin chat i was in and it was a fairly small group and so uh he he lived i guess he probably still lives in south africa Uh, and you guys may have seen the story i think it was in 2017 or so um, he was known for posting about Bitcoin or people knew that he owned Bitcoin or whatever. Uh, and so he was subject to a home invasion and basically, you know, tortured for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, until he gave up his wallet, some kind of access to his coins. Uh, and so in his case, the problem was that he had mm-hmm. been tied to having quite a bit of Bitcoin, but, um, but just the, the situation where you can you know, turn over something without turning over everything is super appealing for any bearer asset. And Bitcoin is one of the few ones where you can actually do that. Yeah. So, so that's one of the motivations on, on how we design this stuff. It's like, so, so first is like, you know, if it's real money, like make sure that under a gun, you, you literally cannot spend it. Right. So like, you know, what I recommend to people is like you put parts of that setup geographically separated so that, you know, like if you're under duress by state or bad people, like, you know, like my answer to them is like, we're going to have to go on a four week trip, buddies, because otherwise I cannot sign it. <laughs> you're gonna literally gonna have to go travel with me. Yeah, and during that time, yeah, you're gonna have to bring your passport, walk through security with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good luck. <laughs> but here's the thing, right? That assumes you have a. That assumes your attacker is sophisticated, right? I don't want to assume that my attacker understands multi-sig. 
So I want to give them something that makes them feel like they have now stolen my Bitcoin uh, without, you know, actually getting to wherever the primary yes. um, stash is. So that's the next. Uh, so, so that's the next. So you have to have multi-level, right? So you have decoy funds, right, on a device. And then you have the device to have a, a brick me timeout, right? So so like on code card, you go and you put a timeout timer, right? So it's going to say on the screen, I cannot sign for, say, 24 hours, right? So the, the attacker doesn't have to be sophisticated to read that the device is saying you have to wait 24 hours. <laughs> mm. Nice. Uh, and then for 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 more sophisticated attackers, like you know, then then the the real money really you put it so it's like completely separated, right? So that jail cannot like make you do it, uh, and uh, and you go from there. But like it, it's very important to have like a lot of things going on at the same time, so that you can deal with different types of attackers uh, in the same setup. Yeah, totally agree. Most attackers now, it seems from what I read, that understand that like uh, that people do have decoy funds. I, I think anybody that can, that will come to your house, armed or otherwise, uh, will be sophisticated enough to understand uh, at least the basics, right? Mm. Unlike those guys in the UK who were given testnet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, That's but keep awesome. speaking to that then. Keep speaking to that, Rodolfo. Like, so you have attackers that are being more sophisticated. Obviously, this, this uh, what is it, CDXOR? CDXOR, right? Mm -hmm. Is going to be like a really, really big win for the average user. Uh, I, I first heard you talk about it actually with uh, Michelle on, on uh, Odell's pod. I thought that was a really good description there. I'd recommend people to check that one out as well. But like, is this going to be enough for like the average person to sort of be able to not lose their seats, kind of going back to Michelle's original point about what do I do with all these pieces of paper? Yeah, because the average person is not going to get shot over their Bitcoin, right? The same way the average, I'm talking about in relatively secure countries, right? Like most people don't get robbed, <laughs> right? Like physically robbed in their homes. Like, so, and that's not going to change, mm -hmm. right? And, and, you know, in countries that are a little bit more complicated, like the U.S., where you do have some level of house robberies, people are also armed to their teeth, right? So, like, they're very soon going to start finding out that you try to rob Bitcoiners, you get shot in the U.S., right? Um, so, <laughs> right. So, like, so I, I think there is a level of deterrence here, right? So if, if word gets out to the bad guys through time and effort, that like, you know, these people have funds not fully available. They are back up against fires because like most people lose their keys by screwing themselves, not by getting robbed, right? They're going to either make a setup too complicated and get locked out or their house burns, right? And, and, and they didn't have it in metal or something. Uh, so uh, because like you, you can't put a seed in a safe deposit box, right? because the bank or the government can go and find it. Now, if you seed soar your seed, now you can put one part in one safe deposit box and another part somewhere else, right? Uh, and then you can have decoy funds and all that stuff. So like the average person can, can sort of like do these setups. Uh, I, I think that sort of 
solves a lot of the problem, at least for now. But hold on, let's try to just keep this for a lower level user, like to what Michelle said, and I understand <laughs> his point. Like you have a lot of, whether it's metal or paper, you have a lot everywhere and you want to like sort of simplify that. And then we also have this issue of like crime, but let's, we're kind of already just put that aside. Say so the most risk is that you're actually going to yes. uh, lose the funds yourself, right? You're, you're not yourself, you're not going to be able to access it. So what what is like just the basic way to use CDXOR and help mitigate this problem and give you like less paper to worry about? Yeah, so so don't do paper first, okay? Because paper is useless, paper burns, Yeah. right? So what you do is you, you buy like three metal plates or two metal plates, okay? You do the CDXOR and it's gonna, it's gonna give you essentially 24 words times two, right? You etch those, you put those into the metal. It's all explained, there's videos and all that shit, right? <laughs> uh, and, and then that's it. Like you have just two plates of metal that don't burn, right? Now you can choose where you put them. It's not that complicated. Like people can put their wheels somewhere, right? Yeah. People can put their jewelry somewhere. They can handle two secrets that are in metal to put in two different places, right? I, I, I'm confident that the average person can do that. Yeah, but you have to, as long as they don't burn and you don't lose both, but you do need both. Yes. I mean, the minimum is just one, right? Like normal seed in metal. The key is don't use paper. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, my, my point was also like, uh, just imagine you're living alone in a country, you don't know anyone, and uh, you actually don't have a remote place to put anything. And I don't don't see any good solution for for that today, Michelle. I I think it's very reasonable for somebody to go uh, travel a few hours somewhere else and get a safe deposit box, right? Put one seed there, like one of the the part A of XOR there, and then uh, travel somewhere else or 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 go bury somewhere the other one. It's not an issue. It's easy. A, a, a GPS tagged location in the woods? Uh, I would recommend to be your land, but yeah, I mean, sure. It doesn't matter if somebody finds it, it's useless, right? Yeah, the, the worst case scenario would be someone finds it, takes it, and when you need to restore your seed, you can't find it anymore because it's not there. Yeah, I mean, listen, if you're going to put it in the woods that you don't own, <laughs> you might want to duplicate that, back, that <laughs> backup, right? So you have you have two of each. Right. In, in, in like different places. Yeah. Just in case. But but like but it's close enough. I mean, like I feel like most people that can afford to buy decent amounts of Bitcoin can afford to find two locations to put something. But drill that point home, though, because it's still like I understand what you're saying, but some people might not get the, the concept yet. Like it sounds like you're talking about more pieces of metal than less. Yeah. So just two, just two is enough. Right. But if I lose one. Or one gets stolen from me. Yeah, it's gone. The funds are gone. I, I really recommend you having two copies of your hardware wallet, right? So you, you buy two of whatever hardware wallet you buy. And then you have them both loaded with a seed, right? Like, and then you can sort of maybe, yeah, yeah maybe you keep them in separate locations. So like, as long as you have like, a, 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 it really depends on your life, right? Like where you live, if fire is a problem, that kind of stuff. But yeah. Uh, you really need to think of in terms of like, okay, if 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 this thing burns, what's chance of burning? You know, like where am I going to put the seed? And and it needs to make sense to you. 
like it's a very personal sort of personalized solution really right i don't think it's unreasonable bottom line is it looks like a seed so if if you do come under the five dollar wrench attack you give that seed and then you have another backup of it somewhere else and they can't use just that one seed to access the funds that's the that's the main point yes so this brings up a follow-up question to me which is uh and i haven't thought this all the way through in my personal life, but I have a pretty decent plan that I'm comfortable with. What I haven't really figured out is an elegant way to do that in the succession planning uh, standpoint. So what if something happens to me, who around me is going to, how do I make that plan simple enough that I can leave instructions or train someone else or make sure that, you know, something happening to me is not also something happening to my Bitcoin. Uh, And so, you know, have it. Yeah. I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts. Yeah, so so the cool thing about physical things, uh, especially if the physical thing is not the full secret, is that there is like already, you know, 5,000 years of like custody uh, of physical things, right? And, and how inheritance works around custody of physical things. So uh, you can have it so that, you know, like, one of the secrets in a, in a safe deposit box and safe deposit box. If you leave them in your wheel to the person that needs to get it, they're going to get it. <laughs> right. Uh, and there's going to be a proper chain of custody there. And then say the other secret it's, it's in some property that you own, right. Uh, they're going to get it too. And then you can have a separate document that describes to them what they need to do. Right. Uh, so, so that's all solvable. It's, it's like, it feels a little bit like like a treasure hunt, and I highly discourage people to make things into a treasure hunt because your widow is not going to be happy about it, uh, and it's going to make it very difficult and easy to to have mistakes. So keep it simple, but you know leverage existing chain mm-hmm. of custody solutions. Yes, that's like a huge part of of like making things work if you're dead. Yeah. So Rodolfo. Uh... I was listening to you earlier this week and um, you said, uh, I think this is a paraphrase, but hopefully it's a close enough quote. So you said freedom doesn't just mean information. It has to be commerce too, which, you know, I think obviously all all of us here agree with that, but you know, I'd love to hear from you. Like why, so what's the commerce, what's the freedom layer of commerce and and, you know, how does Bitcoin further that? Uh, so, so if I remember, the context of that was uh, was in regards to like the problem is like most people maybe listening don't necessarily understand that the commerce and freedom of speech and all these things go hand in hand, right? Uh, and and that governments sort of you know in most reasonable places have upheld the freedom of speech stand, right? But they have insidiously created a lot of uh, uh, of like a lot of censorship around transactions, right? Because it's like, yeah, sure, let them bitch about right things, but let's not let them do the things because to do things you need commerce, right? Essentially, nothing is free in any place that upholds uh, personal property, right? Every time you want to do something, it costs money because that's how you interact with other people in modern society. Um, so, so it's very important that we have ways around the censorship of transaction, right? Which really is through freedom, 
right? True freedom is you can walk somewhere, right? If it's private land, you pay a fee to walk in the land. If it's your land, you already paid it. So you're walking in your land. If it's government land, you paid probably through taxes to walk in that land, right? But without freedom of transaction, you cannot walk in any land <laughs> that is not permitted, right? Uh, uh, in another layer. So, so that's sort of like how I think of it. Um, and, and Bitcoin, Bitcoin does to freedom of transaction what the internet did to freedom of information, right? Like, good luck trying to to censor information on the internet. It's impossible, right? Now, Bitcoin does that to transactions. It's impossible for you to prevent somebody from voluntarily uh, buying or selling something with somebody else. And this gets into one of the issues that, because I'm really into buying things as privately as I can just for the sport of it. So I don't care what it is. I want to figure out how to buy it privately. Uh, and you can get the information, right? You can have an interface. You can you know, interact with between merchant and vendor because uh, that's the information layer. You can transact. So Bitcoin's extensible. I can buy something from you guys wherever you are in the world. Um, but the part that that kind of bottlenecks for certain things is it still has to be distributed, right? So if we're talking about physical goods, so for instance, you know, if someone in another country wants to buy a gun from the U.S., they might be able to find a vendor and pay that vendor in Bitcoin but they're going to have a very hard time getting that gun across borders, right? Just shipping it. And so that's kind of the, the frontier. I don't think has been solved. Uh, I mean, obviously it's been solved for like, um, you know, digital services, right. But for certain physical goods, you're still restricted by the fact that you're crossing borders. Um, anyway, I don't know if there is a really good solution there, but it's a problem. I think it's not necessarily the problem that people think it is, is a cost more than an issue, right? So if you're willing to pay enough for people to to jump the hoops uh, or pay off the right people to get goods across borders, the same way the information goes is possible. I mean, like you, you look at like I love the North Korea example, right? Because North Korea is as hardcore as it gets, right? In terms of preventing physical and informational movement. Um, so people managed to contraband everything into North Korea, right? Uh, there is balloons with USB sticks going with soap opera into there, right? Uh, so, so, you know, the, the more restrictions that happen in society, the more uh, openings there is for black markets of everything. So it, it's just sort of natural flow of that. And, and I think what happens is because Bitcoin now provides a way for the payments to go seamless, without censorship, it furthers the capacity of black markets to exist, right, everywhere. Because before it was two problems. You had to cross the border with the soap opera and you had to pay for it, right? And paying for it was very hard. Uh, so that's solved uh, with Bitcoin. So, so now like it really is just sort of like improving or, or lowering the cost by volume really, economies of scale in the black markets. Um, and, and it's happening. I mean, like, you know, there is no country that can prevent its borders from being porous. Uh, and, and then there is the local market too, right? I mean, like, there is the people trying to transact things the governments don't want between each other. And somehow people manage 
to make it happen. <laughs> like, look at the war on drugs in the U.S., right? <laughs> like, how's that going? Yeah, and not even drugs, but uh, the gun example is a good one. Um, I think to Alex's question as well, I, I, I can't remember his name, but I know this definitely happened, you know, specifically regarding Bitcoin, because Caitlin Long mentioned it. I believe it was maybe a, a, a congressman in Wyoming, but he was getting his bank accounts closed or his, even his businesses closed. He had investments or businesses like in, in gun, I mean, it wasn't hunting, it was like in gun shops or whatever. And um, he's very open now to like Bitcoin and like the, uh, uh, you know, just the commerce that can happen there. No, but the, the gun thing became mute, right? Anyone can print a gun now. It's over. <laughs> also. I, I mean, like, you, you, you know, like you don't even need the parts anymore, right? Like those guys that are working on that problem, like figure out ways for people to even, even print the barrel for God's sake. Like, like a, a, a printed barrel for five, five, six, you know, is it going to be accurate? Probably not. But, but like for the purpose, it, it's like, it's solved, right? They, they even have a project to help European people figure out how to print guns with more restricted parts. So, so like, it, it's all like, Everything at the end of the day is information, right? And information wants to be free. So now that we have the commerce layer to create the incentives around and pay people for making information free without censorship, like it's over. The cat is out of the bag. It's a matter of time. It's just you, you need the, the first people to be willing to get arrested, right? For the rest of the people to enjoy that freedom. And printing metal becomes cheaper and cheaper every day. So that that's a problem which can be solved too. Yeah. I mean, we are even printing DNA now. Yeah, but like, I mean, like, I don't think people appreciate how hard plastic can be. <laughs> like, if it's printed in the right shape with the right chemistry, it, it's, it's tough, man. Uh, you, you know, and they're using like uh, uh, transmission pipes to make the barrels better. They can etch them in buckets. Like... It's such a, it's because it's so fringe and so uh, rooted in some ideology that like a lot of normal people are sort of turned off by it. But as these things become more, more, uh, uh, the, the, the more they cross the Overton window, the more like the more they accelerate the sort of the distribution of it. What about chip risk, Rodolfo? What's your latest take on everything there? Just assume all chips are pound is the, the only way to 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 exist, right? <laughs> like, because everything has a backdoor. Period, right? Like, it, it's it, it, it'd be you'd be very silly to think that it doesn't. Um, the key is how to design things around the fact that, like, you are on on quicksand, right? And that's sort of like that's our mentality, at least. Um, and then, oh, the supply chain stuff is is very interesting right now. There's shortages on everything. Uh, so, so the solution is to essentially overpay for some things and, and just sort of survive it and wait it out until supply chains catch up. Is that trickling down into prices for like the retail prices for your consumers? Yeah. So, so like all the other vendors of most things, not related to just Bitcoin, uh, we're all just eating the difference. You know, we don't want to raise the prices if things are going to sort of go back to normal supply chains, which some things will. Uh, and uh, sort of just dealing it that way. But but like goods are going up in price. I mean, especially consumables, uh, because consumables cannot eat the margin difference, right? 
Yeah, I've seen Purism has increased their prices by $100 on laptops and and the mini uh, computer too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, I know that they had a significant backlog between the pre-orders that they received and their ability to actually ship. Um, part of that is a volume thing too, though, right? So if you're if you're the big dog in the negotiation and you're ordering in the tens of millions, you know, your seat at the table is closer to the top of the stack. Back to that supply chains issue, I've seen a very interesting video this week uh, about why actually and what happened. Uh, and it's pretty interesting. One of the main issues is that uh, the shipping containers coming from Asia to Europe and United States are actually staying empty in the ports and at the delivery sites uh, because there is nothing to send back. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And no one wants to ship empty containers. So, Keto, if there was like the... That's like a an... In, like. It did happen, but not to the extent that people think. It's just because it's like a cool story for TV. The if 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 there was like to the extent that people think it is, they would have just spent the extra money to send them back, right? Because you fill up a whole container ship with a bunch of empty containers, problem solved. Uh, you just have to pay like a little extra. You would you would be a marginal difference in cost for the end consumer if they had to send those containers back. Um, The the biggest issue really is like, because there is so many processes in manufacturing, there's so many, so many, like it's it's literal thousands of little sort of either processes or or vendors to make anything nowadays, right? Uh, The five to 10% disruption in each layer of everything, compounds right and it compounds into a massive shit show that we have right now <laughs> i did hear it was the worst ever the, the biggest like backlog ever in the global supply chain however they're measuring that yeah it's crazy like you you can't even so you can't even buy boats and boats are the thing that normally people will pay you to buy it right like it's like the the most illiquid acid you could possibly have is a boat um, and, uh, like right now it's like, you can put a, a, a dinghy for sale for 10 times the price and it's going to probably sell. I just bought a dinghy, but it hasn't arrived yet. So we'll see. <laughs> there you go. No, it's fascinating, right? Because so uh, another fun thing about the boat stuff is that because of COVID, right? People cannot travel. So people are spending all their disposable income that they're supposed to save because there's a world recession. Uh, in in toys instead of travel <laughs> so so it's like you compound supply chain issues on top of things like into uh, 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 trend changes right of consumer interest and it's like insanity so I had one more question maybe as a closing point uh, so Rodolfo another thing I heard you talk about was and I think everyone here will agree, right? Security and privacy exist on a sliding scale with convenience all the way on the other side. Uh, and probably all of us and a lot of the listeners are willing to deal with you know, more friction than the average person. But how do you convince someone you know, who maybe is more like the average person to tolerate a little less convenience in exchange for upping their privacy and security? Because the, the issue that I run into is that People will say, or it just might be people I know, they'll come to me and say, oh, I want to, you know, 
de-Google my life or get rid of Amazon in my life or whatever, insert privacy ambition here. And then when you explain to them, sure, that's awesome. We can do that. And it's not even that hard, but it's going to require a little bit of change in your behavior. It's going to require a little bit of friction for a couple of weeks while you kind of like pivot from one thing to another. It might take a little bit more time here and there. Uh, and then, you know, at that point you lose 80% of people. Uh, and so like bridging that gap into explaining how to do things, first of all, lowering the bar, making things a little bit easier to achieve, but also just convincing people that the effort is worth the reward. Uh, and that you clearly have spent a lot of time on the privacy and security side. And I'd love to know how you answer that. Ah, fuck convincing people. Let them get wrecked. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's like there is so much there is so much fucking babysitting you can do. And, and I think keto has been in this battle, too, for, for so long. Like me, they're like, you know what? You know what? Have fun losing your privacy. <laughs> like there is like, you know, I'm happy to help if you want to do it. Right. But like, if you're gonna be lazy and like, like battle me on it, well, you know, have fun. Like, I, <laughs> I'm done trying to convince people. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. I mean, if if people don't want to be helped, just don't waste your time on that. Rodolfo, I have one more. When are you going to get nice, pretty time series up and running for Bitcoin Treasuries? Besides just snapshots. Oh shit. I should mention I, I sold the BitcoinTreasuries.org domain. Oh, you did? Yeah. Some what? Wait, wait. They didn't want to buy the content or the other domains, so so I'm still running that project, I guess. Uh, and right now is under the .net until I get it all set up on the .com. So everybody should bookmark BitcoinTreasuries.net. Nothing has changed except the fact that I don't have the .org anymore. It was a price I couldn't say no. So uh, congrats, congrats. Uh, uh, so so that's fun. Stack sats, right? Uh, and uh, so yeah, uh, I am gonna have graphs there as soon as uh, somebody wants to help contribute on that because like I keep on trying to find web devs to sort of like you know even pay to to sort of like create something better, but like I can't find people. So uh, <laughs> so you know what? It's gonna remain exactly as is for now. No, we'll talk about it. I, I, we've talked offline about it, but yeah, it's it's perfectly fits into what I'm doing with uh, money supply stuff, which is as well, hopefully going to come out. Uh, yeah, I can't even put a date on that. It takes so much longer than I think, but um, yeah. I can't wait to have a website Shut to up. point people to for <laughs> day's money. I'm not joking. Like, <laughs> it's like, I, it, no, I knew it was coming. No, but like, it, it, it's not a joke. It's like, I have all these politicians now in Canada that follow me on Twitter, right? And these are more like uh, freedom-minded people. And like, these guys can't mean, right? Like they can't, like, so I, I just want a professional looking website that shows the absolute clusterfuck the government has done with money for them to show in parliament, right? Like, to, it's like, there is nobody after the CIA fact book got taken out, right? That like shows money supply anymore. Yeah, it, it'll be great. No, I'm, I'm super stoked. We talked about it last week with these guys. Like, I'm super stoked. It's 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 going to be really, really good. It's going to be a much deeper level of insight than just the base money uh, exhibit. There's going to be like all different money supplies, GDP, government debt, all that stuff. But um, your, I did, I did want to say, since we have you on, it's a very interesting thing that you've done because I was looking at it, I was thinking about it. And we talked about this last week as well because... Uh, you know, Michael Saylor, love him or hate him as of late, uh, he had a debate with uh, Frank Joostra from uh, major gold mining and, you know, Hollywood investor uh, a couple weeks ago. And 
Saylor made this point, which I always knew was correct. I'm sort of being redundant until last week's show, but I always knew it was correct. It was basically, you know, even gold miners, they don't really, uh, they don't really believe in their book, right? The only gold that ever hits a gold mining balance sheet is in like gross revenue. The rest of their expenses are in fiat. Like, you know, yeah, they hedge the hell out of it. They don't keep asking. Like, the only thing on their balance sheet as an asset are their reserves that they hold theoretically under the land that they own. They don't have any gold, like like major gold on their balance sheet that way. So I've been saying this for a long time. Uh, the only people who make money in gold are the gold miners because they dump the gold on the gold bag holders. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the fact that we have with the, your Bitcoin treasuries, it's actually, I would, put, I would put two things together to get an interesting money supply that, that we've never had. It's, it's Bitcoin treasuries, only the, uh, take out the ETF-like instruments, take out the governments, and you only have like Bulgaria in there. And just the, you know, keep like the micro strategies, the Teslas, whatever, because ETFs can theoretically be claimed on, I mean, just like, you know, you could take a GLD stock certificate down in the New York Stock Exchange and theoretically claim. Yep. So I would take ETFs out. Of, you know, it's fine to look at it as a supply, but I would take it out. So the treasuries, actual treasuries of companies and the mining supply, which is a completely separate supply, but nebulous as well. Uh, a couple, probably a couple million coins in there. Like the, what's in minor wallets. So minor wallets plus Bitcoin treasuries is a very interesting supply that like you've never, you just never even had. Like it's a corporate asset that no one has ever really held in history, like to do business, like to actually hold Bitcoin to do business. Yeah, you might sell some, you might buy some, you might hodl some. I mean, gold miners don't even do this. So like it's a very interesting supply that people need to start paying much more attention to. You know, it's it's interesting is, uh, that you mentioned that because a, a few of the miners that are publicly traded uh, you can see their balance sheet of Bitcoin does change up and down. Yeah. Like almost, uh, uh, well, quarterly, right? When they show. Um, well, I mean, the purpose of that website originally was to create FOMO, right? Because uh, publicly traded company executives are competitive and competitive people need leaderboards. Leaderboards lead to these people to buy more Bitcoin, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that was the goal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so a, as we improve the site in, in, you know, in the future, like I want to get a, a more accurate view. And I, I totally agree. Like, I, I mean, like ETFs and shit like that don't really belong there uh, unless we know that they're holding actual Bitcoin, uh, which most of them don't. Counting their base holdings of Bitcoin is totally good to do. It's like that would compare to, you know, like the holdings of... Uh, of GLD or other, you know, other metals. Yep. But what a lot of people don't even know is Bitcoin itself is way lo larger than the publicly traded ETFs of both gold and silver combined. So it's like, it, it's a much smaller number than people even understand that that's actual, the, the, the paper gold, just like I imagine will be at some point paper Bitcoin might trade many multiples over the physical. But uh, putting all of that aside, it's just an extremely interesting thing. People aren't thinking about enough is the actual treasuries that like actual companies are holding with Bitcoin on their balance sheet and miners. Like that's a corporate asset that just has never been held before ever. It's just never been done. And so we got to we got to see how the other economic implications from that, what they are. If only I knew an economist who could keep up with those numbers <laughs> for me to list on the website. We're going to talk about it, buddy. We're going to talk about it for sure. For sure. I'm, I'm stoked. I'm very excited about all that stuff. So that's probably it for me today. Guys, you have anything else? No, thanks, man. It's great to meet you. Same. It was a good one. 
Fun times. Michelle's enthusiastically bringing it home there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm not sure how to really close that after that. So I guess we can just end the show. But uh, Rodolfo, CoinKite. Yeah, .com, CoinKite.com. Yeah. Just say all the links. Just look for me at AtNVK on Twitter. And just remember that I sold the BitcoinTreasuries.org. It's now BitcoinTreasuries.net. I'm always super bullish when I talk to you, man. Cold card, block clock, open dimes. Definitely check it out. I'm sure you guys all know. All right, guys. Have a good weekend. Take care. Nice seeing you all. You too. Thank you. Cheers, guys.